Down to Business on News Talk. Sponsored by Bank of Ireland. We understand business. Choose the bank that's here to help you rise to today's business challenges and tomorrow's. Now, earlier in the week, I got to interview Steve Wozniak at the Pendulum Summit. Wozniak is an American electronics engineer, computer programmer, inventor, philanthropist and technology entrepreneur. In 1976, with business partner Steve Jobs, he co-founded Apple Inc., which later became the world's largest information technology company by revenue and the largest company in the world by market capitalization. Through his work at Apple in the 1970s and 1980s, he's widely recognized as one of the prominent pioneers of the personal computer revolution. Here's some of my chat with Steve Wozniak. Steve, you're very, very welcome to Ireland first. Uh, it's great to have you here. We're honoured and privileged uh, to have you with us. And thanks for making the journey uh, to be with us. We're going to have a nice chat now and we're going to maybe walk through some of the, bring you down memory lane. But maybe we could start by um, that book, Outliers, where Malcolm Gladwell talked about anybody who's had extraordinary success has, has proceeded with a lot of man hours. We're talking hard work. We're talking, he said that typically anybody who's successful had spent 10,000 man hours, people like the Beatles, people like Bill Gates, and they were able to practice in obscurity. But, you know, when it comes to achieving breakthrough success, hard work is often overlooked. So how much of your early success was grounded in hard work? About zero. Um, well, no, no, no. I had the 10,000 hours, but for me, it was all my life. It was fun studying something that wasn't in schools, getting really skilled, getting skilled to where I could do something once when it was important to the world, but I had no purpose. I just uh, did what I enjoyed and taught myself so well to try to be always trying to think, I must be one of the best engineers for this type of technology of those years, those days. I must be one of the best in the world because I have all these clever tricks that save parts and use them twice and use them in other ways to save money and all that. And, and I have all these tricks in my head, but not only that, I have the ability to always look at a new project I'm working on. What are the best tricks that are going to make it the most efficient? And these were not things that were in books, way out of the books. I mean, I think of, uh, I mean, our first logo was six colors for a reason. Yeah. I mean, this, this show is called Pendulum. And in the old analog days of the old television sets, I mean, it was differential calculus to design anything and feedback, all these different parts and skills, and it cost a lot of money. And color television was kind of like, if you have a pendulum, it swings across your TV set. And if you put out a positive signal at the right time, you get a white dot on your screen there. You get pixels made. And color TV, if you swing at the exact correct rate of putting things onto the wire, you get red. And if you put it a little later, it's blue, a little later, it's green, a little, little more positive voltage, and it's lighter. Okay. And so it was very much, that, those were the old days, analog days, and analog is just science and mathematics of how particles flow in electronics. And today we think digital. Oh, you just put a number in, and you get a number, an answer out according to the number. You know, two plus two equals four. But that wasn't, that's not true in the analog days. It was very skillful. You had to be a brainiac to be an electrical engineer back then. And nowadays, computer science is a different kind of brain work. When you talk, when you look back at the late 60s, early 70s, uh, it was a time of great creativity, a time of music, a time of change. Uh, when did you, or what did you see around you at that time that gave you a sense of, you know what, 
we could produce something here that could could change the world or could change really disruptive thinking. I never worked that way. I never tried to work on things that would change the world. I only, you know, you get good at something. I was very good at mathematics in my school, winning the math awards, good at sciences, good at electronics, you know, at eight years old, the 50s even, and then good at computers before they ever existed. No books in a, in a bookstore or anything about how computers were made. So I just did it for fun. And it wasn't like I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be valuable to the world. Yeah. No, it was valuable to me because what you're good at, you sometimes value and you just keep doing it. It doesn't, it doesn't, wasn't, when I got out of high school, I knew that I could design computers. Any computer in the world, give me a description of that computer inside. And I'll sit down in my, my bedroom and within two days usually, I could design all the little tiny lumber parts, the little chips that would make that computer. I was really good at it, but I didn't, I didn't think that computer design was engineering. I was going to be an electrical engineer. I was good at electronics. The, the heavy, deep, mathematical, you know, differential calculus designs of colored TVs and all that. And I didn't think that computers were um, part of engineering. An engineer, computers just come out of weird places called research or the military, you know. And that's what I thought. So I wasn't intended, this is a course that's going to be valuable to the world. No, it was a course that was valuable to me because I was good at it. You were also a good typist, weren't you? Uh, I, was, I was actually surprising. Yeah, I would take typing too in high school and I would beat the girls. And they yeah. said that never happened. I loved typing so much. And you know, when you love something, you kind of aren't, you aren't doing it because, oh, I want to make a career out of it. Um, necessary or money that doesn't translate to money nothing ever translated to money to me and when I was in college I would people would give their handwritten um, term papers and I would type them up from midnight till 6.30 in the morning and I would charge five cents <laughs> because I loved typing that much I was so good at it you were a bit of a practical joker when you were in college uh, and I know there was some stories around cherry bombs uh, tapping into long-distance phone calls and all that for not paying any money, but there was a real sense of fun uh, around. At the same time, you were creating something, and I was, I was trying to see because often when you look back, you remember the fun of the early days. So, how important is fun when it comes to being creative? You know what? There's a lot of things in society that say you have to follow these exact strict rules. You know, and flying over here on Aer Lingus, I, I watched the movie uh, Dead Poets Society. Don't ask me why I never saw it before in my life, but it's exactly where my thinking is. You know, you've got to let the creativity flow and, you know, not be afraid to express who you are and know who you are. And that was always extremely important to me. All of the uh, top people I met, you know, in Silicon Valley from the big companies, the, the high up ones, the best engineers or the best managers, people who started the companies. Um, they all go back to their childhood and their misbehavior, their little pranks th that they play. The electronics gives you a lot of chances to play jokes on people because they don't know that some electronic device could be doing this thing and, and maybe they and maybe they you know fall for something. I know I like to take strange articles in the news that are real, and then what I do is I send them out to my little joke list, but I put on top of them a heading that says the onion. <laughs> and most people probably think they're, uh, this is fake because it's from The Onion, which, which puts out a lot of jokes, but they're really real. So, yeah, I, I like to, to this day, I just love any little um, chance for trickery or, you know, make a joke out of words. Can I ask you as well, Steve, that when was the, sort of, what, around what time was the defining kind of moment where usable technology, i.e. that maybe there would be a computer in every house or at every desk? Did, did, did that ever? Did that actually happen at a stage that it, that that this vision emerged? 
you know, there's, uh, there's really. kind of like turning points on the step towards everybody having a computer in their home, but it was very gradual at the start for me. I was more inspired than anything else. I grew up and I knew how to make a computer. And I told my father, um, you know, he, more than five years before Apple, I said, someday I am going to own a 4K computer. Because you needed 4K to type in a program and solve a problem that I'd love to do, you know, but be it a game problem or something like that or for work. And I said that. And then five years before Apple, I got an executive actually got me the parts. I designed a computer, got me the parts, and I built it. And it was the old-style computer. You see them in movies and books. And they, they sit up there, and they have a bunch of switches and lights, you know, old IBMs. How do you operate those things? How do you know what all that stuff is? And, and I knew what that was, but I built that computer of my own five years before the computers that would become Apple. Right. And the thing is, I always wanted things to be usable by a human, like typing for one thing. And uh, I always wanted to go up to a computer, type a program in, and get an answer. In the old days, when I was in high school, you could go down to a company. We didn't have computers in our schools. And you could type a program onto these little punch cards that had holes in them that told the computer what the letters were. And then you'd feed those into a machine, bup, 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 and read all the cards in. And, and the computer would get the data in memory and run your program. And then it would have a printer and print it out. Cost of fortune. No individual could ever think of owning one of those. But I wanted one somehow. And I told my dad, someday I'm going to have 4K computer. He said, it costs as much as a house. Yeah. And I was stunned at the table for about two seconds, and I said, I'll live in an apartment. <laughs> Inside, in my core, I threw down the gauntlet and said, somehow I'm going to have a computer of my own someday. Uh, and I was in school, and you couldn't get any, any bookstores or magazine stores with anything on computers. I had to sneak into the highest level research um, physics places in the world. Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, the brightest people in the world had libraries of that kind of material. And the smartest people in the world don't lock doors. I could drive in on a Sunday, find one door open, and get up into the second floor library and learn a lot about computers. So it was, yeah. um, you know, it's just, it's what you want to do in life. You can't even call it work. Yeah. Yeah. You, and, you, you, and what it would lead to. Well, even when we started Apple, would it lead to what we have today in computers being so important in our lives? Well, the amount of memory that held one song back then cost close to a million dollars. Wow. You don't think that, oh my gosh, we're going to have these little devices with a thousand songs on them. Yeah. You just can't think that way. You know, you don't know how far this digital world is going to grow and grow and grow exponentially according to Moore's law. You don't know how far it's going to grow before you're at the end of it, you know, or um, you have to think differently. The, the fact that you started the business with so little money, you know, again, thinking back to those under-resourced days where you were building things, you were being creative, but everything being run on a shoestring, making a few computers to sell them so you could do something else, working out of your apartment. So, so the, the early days being so frugal, did, was, that, was that helpful later on? Um, in some ways, my whole life, the 10,000 hours leading up to Apple, yes, was having no money, you have to think of ways to design things that are very, very inexpensive, that are yeah. barely affordable. Fortunately, I, um, even without a college degree in engineering, <clears throat> I got a job at Hewlett Packard as a design engineer designing the hottest products of the day. And these were the handheld scientific calculators Hewlett Packard had. It was like the, hot, the highest level smartphone coming today. And somehow I got a job because they interviewed me and I knew everything about computers. And, and there, well, there, 
they had a policy that the storerooms would not be locked to en- off to engineers, and you could, you could build things, get parts out of the storeroom for things of your own design if your supervisor approved. And I had a very good supervisor close to me. And so I would, could go in at night and just pull, have an idea to build something and start putting the parts together. Well, first I'd have to do a lot of planning, drafting on a drafting table, you know. All the classes I took in, in college for, uh, um, in universities for um, engineering came into play and I could actually solder all the hundreds of wires, you know, all night long, you know, and go home at four in the morning and, and I could build little projects. Yeah, yeah so you so were able was, to do that on somebody else's time. Lucky, because I had zero money, no savings account. By the time we started Apple, which was five years after I built that first little computer, um, uh, we had, Steve Jobs and I had, we're in our young 20s, we had no money and no business experience. Yeah. It's like we were just, and, and normally you just, you wouldn't have a chance in the world except that the companies that knew about computers that had money, the companies that knew how to manage development of projects, they didn't think the still small computers were going to be worth anything. Well, they didn't pay us any attention. Yeah. So we didn't, you know, we had all this positive publicity and nothing else. And they thought, it, the, the big companies thought it was just going to be a little uh, hobbyist thing. And Steve, is it, is it correct to say that you put forward designs of your own designs to HP, to Hewlett Packard, on five different occasions and they were rejected? Well, the, okay, the first time I to built a really good computer, that computer I could type my own programs in. And I had come up a stage where I had already built, I learned to use my television as an output device. Nobody could afford a teletype, you know, individual. It costs as much as two cars. And I realized a television can be an output device when I saw the game Pong in a bowling alley. Oh, I, I was a television engineer too. I knew everything about television circuits. And so I was able to take chips, very few chips, like 28 $1 chips, and make my own Pong. And then I designed Breakout for Atari. The game where you hit the ball against bricks, I actually designed that for Atari. And that was just one of my, my pastimes. I love these things. But then I saw a friend typing on a computer saying he was playing chess with a computer in Boston. And I learned about the ARPANET. Today's internet has billions of devices. Back then it all started with the ARPANET to have some spread out universities, MIT, UCLA, UC Santa Barbara, University of Utah, Stanford Research Institute, uh, just at six, six sites were called the ARPANET. And if you logged on, you could choose one of those places and you could switch to another place, look at their files, you could log in as a guest, you could run programs. And uh, I had to have that. So I built myself, I said, oh my gosh, I can build the devices. I just have to be able to put letters onto my TV set. And the TV set will talk letters the way teletypes will clunk, 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 clunk. They type letters is all. I'll do it on my TV set. And I just designed that device up and I bought the most expensive thing of my life of development history, a keyboard. Today, keyboards are, cost nothing. Back then, it was the most expensive part of the whole project, but I built it for this terminal. Now I could type into a computer out in Boston and it could type back to my TV in California. Wow. And that was, I just had to have it because I wanted to be a part of all this developing stuff. Now the Homebrew Computer Club started and we were talking about, there were Stanford professors and people from Berkeley and, and they were talking about how what society was gonna change if we had our own computers and could solve our own problems and not have to rely on our companies with millions of dollars to buy the big mainframes. And I got turned on by that and uh, I took my little terminal and I, I, re, I realized these microprocessors are like the computers I used to design in high school. Put a microprocessor in, it's the brains. And then you have to put in memory. 
and there was a right kind of memory and a wrong kind of memory for affordability. And everybody else jumping into this game was using the wrong kind of memory. Right. Cost four times as much. And that was the most expensive part of a computer. Um, but you had to put in some extra designing to use the right kind of memory. I put that onto my board. So now I was typing to my own computer and back to my TV. That was so I, and Steve Jobs wasn't around. Uh, I'd go down to the Homebrew Computer Club and I would show off my little computer and type things in and they'd be on the screen. And I got a bunch of people looking over my shoulder. The formula was out. Every computer before that had the switches and lights for ones and zeros. Every computer after that computer I was showing off was going to have a keyboard and a video display. Yeah. That was a change in history. Now Steve Jobs came into town and there's a movie that shows him finding me in a basement, taking me down to a club to show it off. I am so offended by that because <laughs> I'd been to the club since the day it started. I was there the first day it started and Steve had never been to the club. So I took him. I took him to show the interest. And he saw all these people interested in what I had and that's when he said we should start a company. You know, but I said, I worked for Hewlett Packard. I would never risk my job. I'm going to be an engineer for life at Hewlett Packard. I will never move up the org chart. Yeah. I'll never go into management because it gets political. Funny you mention Steve Jobs because there's been a couple of movies about him uh, and each portraying him and you in different ways. We've got a clip from one that we just wanted to have a quick look at. Uh, what did Steve Jobs do? Let's just have a quick look at this. I was angry. You were saying things about the Apple II and the way you were treating the team was... You get a free pass for life. I gotta get back on stage. We've got like two minutes of rehearsal time left. Do you understand how condescending that just was? Well, maybe you don't. I don't want to see you get dragged off. And I get a free pass for life like from you. You give out the pass. You give them to me. You're going to have a stroke, little buddy. What did you do? What did you do? Why has Lisa not heard of me? Man, how many fourth graders have heard of you? You can't write code. You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen from Xerox Park. Jeff Raskin was the leader of the Mac team before you threw him off his own project. Everything, someone else designed the box. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? I play the orchestra. And you're a good musician. You sit right there. You're the best in your role. I came here to clear the air. Do you know why I came Didn't here? Can you just answer that? I came here because you're going to get killed. Your computer's going to fail. You had a college and university advisory board telling you they need a powerful workstation for two to three thousand. You price next at sixty-five hundred, and that doesn't include the optional three thousand dollar hard drive, which people will discover isn't optional because the optical disc is too weak to do anything, and the twenty-five hundred dollar laser printer brings the total to twelve thousand dollars. And in the entire world, you are the only person who cares that it's housed in a perfect cube. You're gonna get killed. And I came here to stand next to you while that happens because that's what friends do. That's what men do. I don't need your pass. We go back, so don't talk to me like I'm other people. I'm the only one that knows that this guy here is someone you invented. I'm standing by you because that perfect cube that does nothing is about to be the single biggest failure in the history of personal computing. Tell me something else I don't know. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, well, Aaron Sorkin's a great writer, and he takes a lot of liberty there. 
And uh, I remember when that Cube computer, the next computer came out, and I was there at the introduction in, uh, oh, um, the name of that hall, hall, one of the halls in San Francisco. And I felt, oh, it's going to be great, because anything Steve Jobs was behind, I thought was going to be great. Um, I was really, you know, I think he really brought us um, the, the big key things of this world. But he wasn't the start of Apple. Um, my Apple II computer, you know, uh, it was the first time ever that arcade games were color. The first time ever arcade games were software. A nine-year-old kid could write a game in one day rather than a skilled engineer hooking up a thousand wires for half a year to make a new game. This was a, a huge turning point. And that one computer, I did all my own, every bit of hardware and software, and uh, it was going to be all of the revenues of Apple, all the big profits for the first 10 years of the company. Only one successful product, the Apple II computer. Yeah. And Steve hadn't had a part in designing that. And he sort of always portrayed himself as though he'd had a design role, but he didn't. And I only confronted him one time in early days that all these things are right, like you did the hardware, you did the software, and I did yeah. them both. And uh, he, he actually, and he actually stopped uh, portraying himself that way to the press. So it was a very small incident that got blown up in <laughs> okay. a lot of lot of ways. But um, but but in, you know, once Steve Jobs was there, we started Apple. Your personality settles between, let's say, eighteen, twenty-three years old. You become who you're going to be for life. And I was a little past that point, but Steve was right in it. And all of a sudden, he was founder of a company that had big money, based on my Apple II computer. Um, and uh, that was the time he's going to present himself to the world as, you know, the, the key, the, you know, our company and himself as sort of the key to the whole world of the whole future. And I was shy. Just let me stay in a, in a laboratory and keep designing new stuff. I don't want to deal with press or anything. So, so we, we had different roles, but no, we were always good friends right to the end. And what was your working dynamic like in terms of he was clearly the marketing man, you were the guy who was the engineer putting through, uh, you know, building, designing. So did you, was there an understanding between you that you both were good at different things? It wasn't, not, never like a discussion or anything. I don't discuss things with people really. I don't ever confront, I don't ever argue and openly like that. Yeah. I mean, I just never, ever happened. Um, everybody, everybody I ever met likes me. I, if somebody's bad to me, I'm still good to them. Yeah. So, um, so when we started, we, you know, you had to have a company, and we had a funder who was willing to put the money in for my computer, all my computer. And um, that funder was, our, was the adult in the room, and he explained to us who you hire, what their responsibilities have to be, how you set up a technology company, and how it's done. He explained to us what our roles would be. That was Mike Markula. And he also ran marketing, and he said, instead of an engineering, the Apple II computer had come totally from an engineering perspective. Yeah. He said, we'll be marketing-driven. That's important. The market will decide what to do. And for the next 10 years, all we did was make marketing mistakes. But we had a great product, so we kept selling. Now, Steve had, to, what was his role? It couldn't be anything engineering, because I was here. And he looked around, and oh, he started studying marketing techniques and ways to make things look good on a screen, and ways to talk and present to investors and all that. We start out tiny and you grow up and you meet more and more sophisticated business audiences. And that was Steve's um, role. By seeing how other people in the company make the big decisions, he would learn how to do it all. So, and he did, he did excellent at that. But you need, if you're gonna have a startup, we were a startup then, you'd better have some, some good engineering. You know, if, you aren't, if you're based on just my ideas and I'll go hire the engineers later, you're not gonna have the greatest products yeah. in the world. You know, find an engineer that knows how to make things better than anybody's ever done. Second, you need businessmen. 
Some, somebody like Steve Jobs that says, I want to have a business that's real successful and makes a lot of money and that's, that's how you become important. And he wanted to be one of those important people that moves the world forward in history. From the day I met him, he wanted to be that, that kind of a person. But you also need some good marketing thought as to what you should build and why and what decisions you should make on products and pricing and competition and all that. And uh, so we had, we had all those three. They could be in one person or they could be in two people. They could be in three people. Yeah. We just divided up our way. And I wasn't going to go close to the business side of things um, because I just have a type of internal engineering yeah. honesty. And, and so, so did that dynamic kind of, as the business grew and grew and grew, did that dynamic change in terms of you still? Oh, uh, well, no. After some point in time, we had made ourselves a very, very big successful company. And now we were so managed that if an engineer wanted to propose a product, it had to be all approved and signed off by, you know, 20 people. And, and uh, every little detail explained. If you try to make a change later on, it's a hassle to go back and make a change in what you're doing. You know, you're working on a project as an engineer. Sometimes you say, oh, my gosh, if I'd done this other thing a little differently, well, we could have had a whole bunch more. If I'd added something else in, it would have cost no money. You think of that, but it was hard, getting hard to do with the management structure. I came from the, the perspective of a personal inventor. You have engineers who are very skilled. Thankfully, I had that. You need that. But I also had the inventor personality where you think of something, you want to run into a laboratory and start building it or working out some code and trying to prove that this concept could work and now uh, show it to others. And that's the inventor. And inventors are very different than engineers. Give an engineer a job, here's what I'll do, and da, 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 da. strictly they can do it. But uh, inventors are just a strange type of people. You can't really recognize them. When you, when you look at the whole evolution of technology, Steve, in the last 30 years, and you know, the way technology has changed everything that we do, most of it for the good, do you ever feel that maybe, or are you ever any way guilty that technology, in many instances, has actually caused more stress? Uh, you know, if you're having to deal with well, 300 emails a day, or, you know, the, the fact that I apologize. Yeah, I apologize for all that. Um, I, based people who know me say, I never hear you cuss. I've cussed more times in my life at two companies, Tesla and Apple, than all the rest of the cussing in my whole life. Yeah, things yeah. that you do right, and it just doesn't work. Just in the car coming over here, one of my apps, Air Lingus, just failed and failed and couldn't find the internet, and I had to delete the app and put it back in. The, you know, I go through this so often when you do nothing wrong, and it fails, and I just want things to work. Yeah. And we've gotten to the point we accept a lot of um, a lot of this stuff. Well, I must not know enough. I'm I'm subject to the technology. It's more important. It, when Apple was starting to make computers easy to use, I looked at it as: is the user more important, or is the technology more important? And if the user's more important, you put all the work in the technology, so it just works intuitively. You don't have to think, and you get the right answers, yeah. the right solutions. We've lost a lot of that, but in the Macintosh days with the mouse, you know, and the Lisa days before it, um, that really applied. And I think that we've given up a lot of our humanity, and technology has won and will win, and all the big companies that control our lives make the decisions, and it's like we don't own things the way we used to own them. Yeah. And that bothers me. Yes, yeah, so yeah. I, I see a lot, of, a lot of negatives and, oh, the stress of the world of trying to keep up with it. Um, I have a problem saying no, and that keeps me with way too more email than I can answer, you know. I mean, I get a dozen emails a day, too, asking me to join some company. 
and be a part of them and help market for them and stuff like this. I'm only one person who just wants a one-person life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it all becomes very complicated uh, when all you and want to is... understand. Yeah, to understand what's wrong. Why isn't this working today? And then you read something online, oh, there's a little bug in it, or here's a workaround. Uh, and, I and, hate that. And is your mind still as it always was? So will you take apart something? That, if, if there's something in the hotel room that isn't working, will you, will you, will you open it up and have a look inside? And uh, no, because in the digital just, world, it's very hard to tell what's wrong. Um, it's, you know, it's very, uh, uh, you know, kind of very... Sorry for that. I, sometimes I think that those of us who brought the digital world to the world to us should be executed. <laughs> I no longer say that. I say something much worse. <clears throat> those of us who brought the digital world should be forced to live in it. Yeah. That's yeah. the worst. I, mean, I used to go to hotels and, oh, yeah, I'd take things. I know how this works. You know, flips will switch over, and when I order a movie, it'll pay another room. <laughs> you know, I used to, or, or I'd take a telephone apart, you know, it was the old push button telephones. One, two, three, vertic horizontally, four, five, six, horizontally. And I just put the buttons back in there so it was one, two, three, vertically. And it looked okay to anybody, but you'd get the wrong, you'd get the wrong numbers. That's the joker coming out here again. That's great. Those are, those are a couple pranks I actually did, but I never got to see the results. Right. You know, see somebody. <laughs> Can I ask you to what extent you'd value failure uh, as a learning tool? So when things don't work, stuff goes wrong, just in terms of the learnings and use, using those learnings to, to make it better the next time. I'm the wrong person to ask. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's a, it's a very, I'm in a very strange situation, which is all of my working up from, you know, um, five or ten years before Apple, every project I ever attempted, I did perfectly as an A plus and didn't have failures. And yes, sometimes they were hard work. You had to work to, you know, get it completed. And some that I thought were impossible, ah, some idea would occur to me and be possible. And I don't know why. Magic was pouring out of my brain for about 10 years. And I look at it as, I, I did a lot of things for fun. I built projects like games for fun or little light things or even back in high school, something that went like a siren. And then I would use it during our driver training courses and see if anybody pulled over. And I, you know, all these things were for fun and they weren't for companies. They weren't valuable enough to build a company on. But every time I did one, I learned a new trick to make it that I'd used before. A method that I used, I would use in the next project or apply it if it applied. Yeah. And yeah, so I, those are not failures, but they are definitely stepping stones on the way. Everywhere I go, I hear, you know, an in, uh, inspirational talk, talkers talking about a failure they had and how it pushed them to try something different. And somehow that wasn't really my life okay. all through yeah. the important Apple times. In later years, yes, I, I had some failures and uh, just learned that, well, sometimes you can't meet engineering goals. You know, there's a couple of startups I had, and what you can do is find a different way to market it. Yeah. You know. Where do you see the next breakthrough innovations in technologies coming from now? What, what, where do, with all that's happened what next? Uh, yeah, that, well, that's the question you get asked the most. But we all read the same journals and articles, quantum computing. I mean, that great, great. If tomorrow we found out, my gosh, somebody had a new approach to it, and it just took over the whole world of, of computing type things. But, you know, if that happens, we can't know it. All the big steps that, that our society has taken so far, you know, coming from personal computers with the Apple II, to um, the, the iPod, 
music in your hand, to the iPhone that even a beginner could use and yeah. get so many things done. All of those kind of came unexpectedly. You couldn't really look ahead and say, that's the next thing. Most companies that are working on projects know what they have now and can kind of see a short step from it. But the people making the decisions are the high up business people in those companies. And they are not engineers who would think of the very unexpected clever, th clever things that are way out of the book. That's, that's pretty rare. So, yeah. uh, it's, so it's very hard to answer that sort of question. Um, yeah. I do hope that we get down to where we can finally maybe get more control of the internet as a user to eliminate things like the spam and you know the, e the evil phishing attempts on us, uh, getting our passwords and all that and have a lot greater security because every day you just read about you know 100,000 people's accounts got, got yeah. interrupted or 10 million or whatever. Yeah, you know, no, it's, it, it's, it's a vulnerability, isn't it? That's, that's, that's yeah, we're, more we're more supposed problems. to be providing really good things to people that help them in their lives and uh, we opened up a lot of um, ways to be tricked because yeah. the con people will always be here. I know you've got views on artificial intelligence and I was going to ask you, should we, worry, should we be worried that uh, machines one day being more intelligent than humans or is that, is, is, well, do, do you see that as a capability that we could get to that place? That machines will be able to do better for us than we can do on our own is a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's like that's what computers have always been about, letting, letting one person do more than they could have just on their own. But calling it intelligence is the mistake. Right. I agree with the A. I do not agree with the I. The I is closer to idiocy because algorithmic idiocy, these algorithms making decisions can help us, but the one time they don't match because today just happened to be a strange day, a holiday, or a president got shot and everything's on hold. The normal routines of the day that they're trying to do for you. Artificial intelligence always tries to guess what you're gonna do next and help you by doing it ahead of time. Um, these are horrible when it misses the boat. Like how a brain works. Like we understand neurons and synapses and talk about them. We don't know how the brain's wired. When I went back to Berkeley, for my last year of college to get my degree. My name was famous, so I went under a fake name, and I took the psychology courses for psychology majors because I wanted to study the brain workings and, you know, and things like that. We don't even know that our memories of things that happen are in the brain. There is not one bit of evidence that they are, except for the fact that the processing centers are in the brain. We don't know the memories are there. We can't duplicate a memory, find a memory, show what it is. Um, and take advantage of it at all. Uh, 40 years ago, I made the strongest statement you'll find in any book that, that suggests where memory might be. And I made it as a joke because it can't be there, which is you lose two things between the ages of six and 10. You lose your childhood autobiographic memories, what things that happened to you, and you lose your teeth. Yeah. And it's stunning. You won't find anything in any memory book that comes closer to that as a possible explanation. And we know the memories aren't the teeth. So I was just pointing out that we don't know how the brain is wired. And we really pretend more like we kind of know what intelligence is and we don't. You mentioned your Polish heritage there. Have you any Irish connections? Um, it's, yeah, it's funny. Um, and my Polish, although my name's Bosnia, came from Poland. It's also a Ukrainian spelling, not a Polish spelling. Okay. Whatever that's worth. But yes, um, my grandmother had grandmother Mary McGinnity from Ireland. Go okay. on. Okay. I've never researched it. I don't. I'm an American. I'm an American. I grew up an American. I am what I am. I am what I. Uh, all this past stuff and history and how it influences. No interest. Me. I'm not one of those. <laughs> no. Um, a lot of people are, but it's something you can do for fun to study and 
but uh, and explore, but it doesn't influence who I am. Okay. And what next for, for, for you, Steve? What, what, what are your, when you think about your plans for the next few years, what do you want to do with your life? You've, you've done so much. Is there more stuff you want to do? You know, I spent a long time acknowledging Apple's success and keeping up with everything going on in the Apple world and how to do this and explaining to people. I even taught. I taught classes. There was a, another one might be the greatest thing I did in my life, uh, you know, aside from walking my daughter down the aisle. But, um, yeah, I taught classes for eight years full time. Yeah. I mean, I put my whole life into it, and my classes were long and hard, 200 hours per year per groups, and I was up to seven days a week of teaching. So, But these things all took me away from being a developer, yeah. like I was. Those are the most fun days of my life. So uh, not that many years ago, I picked up a Raspberry Pi, and I read the book about its purpose was to teach young children how to use computers, which was a big purpose of my entire life. And so I got a Raspberry Pi, and I said, I'll, I'll learn Linux, and I'll start learning some projects. You go online, you find a lot of projects you can build with your Raspberry Pi, mostly software. And the trouble is, they're all done by college kids using a version of Linux that was two years old, older, and so nothing works. 30 steps. Do all these 30 steps, and you'll have maybe um, your own Echo, your Amazon Echo with Alexa and all that. And every single step is wrong and doesn't work. And, you know, right. you have to, but when you have to figure something out that's not working, you have to figure it out yourself and go hunt for solutions, you learn things better than ever. And that's how I was. And then when you finally get it working, you say, oh my gosh, ah, oh, I got it working. And it's the greatest joyful feeling of my entire body. And I know who Steve Wozniak is. It's the person who liked to get these things done. You know, whether they're worth something, don't have to be worth anything as a company, but you actually managed to get it done with your own brain. And I built a lot of fun networking projects and all that with yeah. my Raspberry Pis yeah. and, and love it. The trouble is you can have a lot of factors in life in this digital world that take all your time away. So I don't get a lot of time to do even things like that that I love. I mean, I'm just constantly, well, right now, I'm, yeah. my, my occupation, I, I, the great wealth we had, I never wanted wealth in Apple. When we went public and three of us had unfathomable amounts of money, I didn't really want that, so I started putting it into um, um, arts groups and museums and things like that in my city, San Jose, California, the first sister city of Dublin. Ever. That's right. San Jose, California. Very important to acknowledge they, they named the street after me, Waz Way, a really important street, actually. <laughs> and but so <laughs> when we went public and three of us had all this wealth, you know, we were founders, so we had founder stock. And I never sought wealth in doing this. I just wanted to get my computers to the world. And, uh, and I looked down and I said, founders are early people. Well, if there were some people around me, if I didn't have people around me that liked what I was doing at the Homebrew Computer Club, some of them in high school, would I have been motivated to do what I did? They were kind of in there from the beginnings and followed through and stayed with Apple. So I gave five of them each um, you know, millions of dollars of my own stock um, you know, Which not very generous stock. of you. Yeah, there was one of those movies where Steve Jobs wouldn't give stock to an early important person, Dan Kotke. And the guy that was playing me, Josh Gad, a really fine actor, had read my book. And he tried to present, no, Steve Wozniak went to five of these people and gave them a lot of stock. You know, because I felt it was right. They were there at the early days. That's what a founder is. But I also sold tens of millions of dollars of my stock to the employees of the company pre-IPO, before you go public. Yeah. And before you're on the stock market. And they were able to, cap, as soon as we went public, they were all able to get basically a house out of the deal. I felt, you know, there's three of us at the top that have our names on a document, but these people are all helping to make Apple successful yeah. too.
That's just how I fit, so, how I see so, the world. So wealth was a byproduct and money was a byproduct, but that was, that was never your driving interest. I, yeah, I never really wanted um, uh, to start the company to make a lot of money, and then when it happened, it was accidental in my case. I just wanted to make great computers, and I, I had a station to make great computers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I was a little offended because I felt uh, growing up, I became one of those people that just feels that money can disturb your good values, your good morals, and it can corrupt, corrupt your values and uh, even the adherence to truth. The most important thing to me of all the things that you do that are good in life, truth is the head of them all. If we could ask you maybe one more question on would you have done anything differently as you reflect backwards now and look at your contribution you know, to technology, to, to the world? Would you, if you, if you were doing it again, would you, would you do anything differently? This gets into the, the best thing I ever really did, which was my, I mean, when I was 20 years old and I thought, do I want to be one of these accomplished guys selling $50 million companies back and forth? I read an article about Sumner Redstone of Viacom. I said, or would I rather be the guy laughing about a prank we played with my friends? Yeah, yeah. No, on the day I die, I want to be the guy that's laughing. So I came up with that life's not about accomplishment, as most people understand it. It is about happiness, how happy you are in life. And if a lot of accomplishment, making money makes you happy, that's good too. But how happy you are and how do you feel emotionally? How much do you laugh and how much do you frown? So my formula was H equals S minus F. Happiness, H, equals smiles, S minus frowns. So I did a lot of things in my life to you know, make up jokes and humor, 10 things, listen to music that you love, a lot of Irish music. I mean, just last month, uh, my wife and I saw a couple of Irish groups in, in the San Francisco area. Yeah. Um, yeah, the script and um, uh, Snow Patrol. Good man. Yeah, we, we, love, we love music. But do the things that make you happy and laugh and smile and even driving long road trips with ourselves. Minus frowns. Avoid frowns. Okay. Well, I just want to thank you, Steve, for your, for your frankness, for your honesty, for, 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 for just being yourself and for opening up to us here and sharing your world with us. We've really, really appreciated it. I forgot to tell you why we started Apple. Tell us. Steve and I, we <laughs> talked about it. We wanted to build technical equipment that would make blind people more equivalent to sighted people. We want to make up for their, their handicaps. And you can see how successful we were. Just drive down the street, look on the sidewalk, and everybody's walking around. <laughs> Steve Osbeck, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 